his house and to feel his presence, I want to say we uh, love and appreciate this church very, very, very much. Love and appreciate your pastor. Good to see Brother Getty. Where are you, Brother Getty? Brother and Sister Getty, God bless you. Those are beautiful people. We're so happy. So happy you're here. And uh, appreciate the very, very kind remarks of your pastor. That's very, 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 very kind of him. I, I learned this a while back, and I thought it was so good. Um, people that are dumb enough to let compliments go to their head are also probably dumb enough to let criticisms go to their heart. <laughs> so I, 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 it's like bubble gum. I enjoy it, but I don't swallow it. Praise God. And, uh, but I appreciate the sentiment, and I mean that. I'm going to ask us if we would to turn to the book of Luke, chapter number 21. And we're going to begin. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to start in the 20s. We start somewhere in the 20s, see. Luke 21. I feel like I am uh, I'm preaching this message this morning, and I'm not just saying this. Um, this is a very special church. I don't believe that there is any one God Jesus named church that is striving to please God in spirit and truth that is not special. I mean that with all of my heart. Having said that and meaning it, however, I believe this is a very important um, church to this part of the country, especially, and of course to this city, this area. And um, your pastor and his wife are highly esteemed, very loved. This is not just a mutual admiration society meeting. Um, they're very wonderful, special, special people. And the hand of God is on them. And I thank God for their friendship and their leadership. And I thank God for this church. I want to bring something to you that um, I feel is very important. I was driving through Alabama, and I was praying, and I found the Lord began to talk. As he did begin to talk to me, um, that night I was up to way late in the night, early morning, working on what I want to bring to you today. I'm going to begin reading at verse 26, a really happy, happy, smiley face verse of Luke 21. It begins, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then... Shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory? And when these things begin to come to pass, 
then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Let's pray together. And while we're praying, just before we pray, I'd also like us to pray. On the way here today, I was on the phone with a dear man of God, Brother Jess Parker, Jess Starr, Brother Jesse Starr. I pray for the Parkers too. But Brother Jess Starr pastors in Minot, North Dakota. And he and his father are in the same hospital. And uh, they do have COVID. And I told him that we would pray for him today. And that meant so much. So let's pray for this service. Let's pray for the Star family in that church. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe, God, and we love you. We ask in Jesus' name, gracious, great, mighty God, that your hand would be here you would minister powerfully and deeply and profoundly through your word and spirit. You see, Brother Jess Starr, we're asking you, God, to touch, Lord, with healing virtue into him and his father, Alfred's body. Do the work that only you are able to do, God. Touch Elder Sister Starr. Bless that church mightily, God. Do the work of Jesus. We stand in on. We love you, God. We commit this service into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you so much. You may be seated. Concerning our text, I'm just going to make this statement before we move on into the waters I feel God would have us to go. Luke 21, Matthew 23, 4, 5. Mark 13, many other, several other portions of both Old Testament and the epistles deal with the days in which we live and the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In this, there's so much said throughout the book of Revelation, of course, that there are so many statements made, for lack of a better term, hints given, things which we're told which we are meant to look for, see, so that that day does not come upon us unawares. We are not people of the night, we are people of the light, amen, and he did never mean for this day to come upon us unawares. Having said that, uh, men's hearts just in the, in the days in which we're living, we are in um, America's in troubled hours, troubled days, troubled season. And, um, but the whole world is, all to varying degrees. And um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm really not. I, I'm a conspiracy analyst. But there are a lot of things happening right now. And uh, please forgive this vernacular, but um, there's things happening that you, the village idiot can't miss. That things are afoot. And um, I don't know that the world in some degrees will ever quite be the same again. Um, but we're not 
in this world so that we can maintain a status quo of American society. We're here for a different purpose. We're here for a different purpose. So while men's hearts are giving up on them, failing them for fear, because they're looking for things that coming that are happening on the earth, the powers of heaven being shaken, he has another word for us. Our hearts are not to be failing us for fear. We're to be looking up and um, lifting up our heads because we recognize this. Our redemption is closer than it's ever been before. And uh, we're, at, uh, we're at the red light, but we know it's fixing to turn green. Hallelujah. And, and so we, we're, we're, just, we're just ready and getting ready. Now, I, I'm, uh, I've uh, recently found out we have 11 grandkids. I just recently found out we're going to have a, another. And uh, each of my boys will be, have four kids each. That's a trip. And uh, when, when, uh, when my son Philip and Jen informed us, uh, she was not wringing her hands, sitting there trembling, saying, labor's coming. I haven't had morning sickness yet, but I know it's going to be here soon. And we're buying up a lot of pickles and ice cream. There was none of that. They were excited. They were happy. And, uh, and, and this is something they've wanted. And now here, here it's coming. And this is the way we need to look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We've been looking for this for a long time long time and and what I'm about to say I'm going to make a, a statement that that is uh, it's stupid and I know it's stupid it's a, it's a stupid way for phraseology to go but there is a part of me now granted I'm as human as everybody else but when I think about what's on the other side when I think about what's headed our way when I think about the eastern sky parting and we are going to be with him, with fellow 10,000 thousands of saints down through the ages and that have been rose to meet him, hallelujah. And now we're going to be coming back with him. There's a part of me that wants to praise, bring it on, baby. Praise God. Just bring it on. It's what we've been looking for. But uh, having a baby is having a baby. Now, I'm going to... This is not the first time the world's been in trouble. We are in August of 20, and um, in June 80 years ago, Nazi Germany was the juggernaut of Europe and affecting the entire world. Nazi Germany was at war with France and England Ostensibly, 1936, Hitler and the Nazi party in Germany took the Rhineland. In 1938, they took over Austria. Quickly after that, Czechoslovakia. In 
August of 1939, the world was shaken when Hitler and Stalin signed a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Germany. This shook the world. It especially shook a nation called Poland because the very next month, on the first day of that month, coming from Germany, Poland was invaded, and then on their western end, the eastern end, here came Russia. And so now Poland is taken, and World War II officially began. By June of 1940, the allies that they had gained was Hungary, Italy, Bulgaria, Romania. They had also conquered Denmark, Norway. Now France had just fallen. They were out of the war except for a few that became involved in guerrilla tactics and escaped to England to fight again. And Great Britain was the only nation on earth to fight Germany alone. One month before, in May, a 65-year-old man by the name of Winston Churchill became the prime minister. Winston Churchill, 65, had already lived one of the most amazing lives in British history. He was a member of parliament by the age of 25. At age 25, he had also published five books. At that age, he had already written 215 newspaper and magazine articles. And before his life was over in the histories that he would write of his forefathers of World War I, of World War II, and several other books, he would have written more than William Shakespeare and Charles Dickens put together. This man participated in the last great cavalry charge of history. He made a daring escape from a prisoner of war camp in the Boer War. He had fought on more continents than any soldier in history except for Napoleon. He had seen at 25 as many military campaigns as any living general. He had a mind that was without exception. It was unique. He was a character. As an example, even up into the latter years of his age, he could quote the poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It takes 17 minutes to read it, 25 minutes to read it with feeling. He could quote all 3,933 words and never miss one. And this man had a sense of destiny since he was young. Like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Lord Horatio Nelson, and others, he always believed he was destined to do special things. At the age of 16 years old, he wrote a friend. They still have the letter. His friend's name was Merlin Evans. 
and I'm quoting from his letter, at 16, I can see the vast changes coming over a now peaceful world. This wasn't even into the 20th century yet. Great upheavals, terrible struggles, wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked, and I shall be very prominent in the defense of London. I see into the future. This country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means, I do not know, but I tell you, I shall be in command of the defenses of London. And I shall save London and England from disaster. Dreams of the future are blurred, but the main objective is clear. I repeat, London will be in danger, and in the high position I shall occupy, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. Sixteen years of age. This was the man who was born two months premature in Blenheim Palace, built for the Duke of Marlborough that, that uh, fought so valiantly in the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, this was the man that would have been the Duke of Marlborough, the man who was the Duke of Marlborough when he was young, was 70-some years old. He'd never had an heir. That meant when he died, Churchill would be the new Duke of Marlborough. In the 70s, the guy finally had a baby, a boy, his wife, rather. <laughs> and uh, so there was a new Duke of Marlborough. And poor old Winston missed his chance. But had he become the Duke of Marlborough, had that man in his 70s not had a boy, Winston Churchill could have never become prime minister because you cannot be a house of, the Lo house of lords and prime minister in the 20th century. Times had changed. At one point, during one of the battles he was in, he was a great fencer. He was a great, great swordsman. They say that he could have possibly fought in the Olympics. But he was damaged. His arm was damaged in a severe blow in, a, in one of the battles. From that day, he could no longer use a sword when he fought in the last great cavalry charge, he could not use a sword, which all of his fellows were doing. He had to use a pistol. And he is also one of the only prime ministers that ever lived that killed many people in battles. And had he not, had he had to use a sword, he'd have died with everybody else. But he had to use a pistol. So that wound was good for him. He had survived three car crashes. Once he was run over by a car, horridly, barely, barely, it was a miracle he didn't die in New York City. Two plane crashes. He was concussed for days after jumping 30 feet off of a bridge. He stayed in a house one night that burned to the ground in the middle of the night, but he was spared. He was very nearly drowned in Lake Geneva. He was stabbed as a schoolboy. He had four serious bouts of pneumonia as well as a series of heart attacks through his life. Amen. Now, he was not living for God. Jesus Christ no doubt knew Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill 
even by Anglican standards, did not know Jesus Christ. At one point, he was not a very religious man, but the, the government represents is over the Anglican church. And he said, and if you'll see the big old giant massive churches, they have outside of them decorative architectural columns. They call them flying buttresses. They were designed that they could build high, 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 gorgeous buildings and then not collapse on themselves from the weight. Flying buttresses add to the architecture, but they support them from the outside. And when he spoke about his belief in Anglicanism, Christianity, he said, I'm a supporter of the Anglican church. But he said, I'm more like a flying buttress. I support it from the outside rather than from the inside. So that was him. But I feel very safe to say God had his hand on him. Because as Abraham Lincoln said in his second inaugural, the Almighty has his own purposes. So here's this man who, in a recent survey, British youth from the ages of 16 to 24 asked, what percentage of them, I don't know, can you name the top four prime ministers of the 20th century? 87% never even brought up his name. And historians, most historians, place Winston Churchill when we came into the 21st century and they were looking back over the past century. They were going to name the man of the century. The most important human that lived in the 20th century. It was not Albert Einstein. It was not Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That honor went to Winston Churchill. Because this is the man that they say more than any other single individual saved the democratic world from Hitler's murderous, maniacal fascism. And 87% of the ages of 16 to 24 didn't even name him as one of the great prime ministers. And I went on to read, they say at this rate, in 80 years, people of Great Britain will hardly even know who Winston Churchill was. That's called the dumbing down of society. So now it's June 1940. He's been prime minister for a month. And he gives his most famous speech in the House of Commons, June 18th. These are his closing words. And many of you have heard them. What General Weygand has called the Battle of France is over. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life, the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned upon us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed, freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world 
including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. Now, it's one thing for me to read this. Pretend it's June 1940, and you're in your homes listening to his garrulous voice on the radio. If we fail, we'll sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister, sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Listen closely. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Now, the Almighty has his purposes. And he wanted Britain, the United States, to succeed. But listen, we're not here today to talk about Great Britain or the United States. We are a people involved with the only eternal kingdom of God. Kingdoms, king, kings, and kingdoms will all pass away. But oh, there's something about that name. I'm not here to talk about Winston Churchill, though I've spent some time doing it. I want to talk about, for a little bit, just some important things about our king and our leader and the sense of destiny that was upon him who Scripture lets us know he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. Our Savior, amen, was planned, and, 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 and when he came into this world, that lamb Understand that at the age of 12, he already knew, and he would be telling his mother, Mary, and he's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about the great, eternal, bloodless, invisible, omnipotent, deathless, temptless God who would overshadow that little virgin, and she would give birth to the one that would be in the world, and the world was made by him. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Father, he said, that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Hallelujah. The words that I speak, I speak not of myself. It's the Father that dwelleth in me. And now this invisible God has become visible in the man Christ Jesus. Divinity took on humanity. The Father of all became the son for our redemption. Hallelujah. This God who had neither flesh nor blood, this God now had the only innocent blood that ever pumped through a human heart that would be shed for you and I. Hallelujah. And this God who tempts no man through that body would be in all points tempted, like as you and I, yet without sin. And this eternal God who cannot die would taste He was slain from the foundation of the world. I like that sense of destiny. And as he 
was destined, those that he would save are destined. Hallelujah. He may have, Winston Churchill may have saved the British Empire, but Jesus Christ has saved a number which no man can number out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. Hallelujah. Now, Winston Churchill was a great writer. I've read many, many, many of his works. But I'm going to tell you about the author and the finisher of our faith. Hallelujah. First of all, this is God who became flesh. And it was God that used over 40 writers, amen, over 2,500 years of ministering, moving, touching, amen, to give us this book. Hallelujah. People have scoffed it, mocked at it. People like Voltaire said 100 years from now on his printing presses from which he would produce his books, 100 years from now, the name Christianity will be lost from the earth. 100 years after his death, they were using the same printing presses to print Bibles. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let me tell you about this best seller. It's the top-selling international bestseller of all time. When it comes to international bestsellers, America has its bestsellers, Exodus by Leon Muris, uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, is, is it, but worldwide bestsellers, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, Charles Dickens, 200 million. The Little Prince has sold 150 million. The Hobbit, J.R. Tolkien, 150 million. This will make you pause. Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, 120 million. Agatha Christie wrote a book, Then There Were None, sold 100 million books. Let me tell you something. Every year in the world, 100 million Bibles are printed. Every year. That's printed. And this made me feel good about America. Americans buy 25 million of those 100 million Bibles every year. Every year. Now, what they do with them is their business, God's business, and it's becoming our business. There's a hungry field out there. There's a hung, listen to me, there's a hungry field out there. And they do not know how many Bibles have sold, but the closest they could get back in 1995, which was 25 years ago, they figured that since Gutenberg's press, there have been 5 billion Bibles sold. Now, I'm going to tell you something else about our king, our savior, our deliverer. Listen closely. He was deaf and he was blind. In Isaiah 42, 19, Messianic prophecy. The omnipotent Jehovah God speaking of the days of his servitude. Speaking of the days he would be robed in flesh as human as you and I. Tempted like you and I. That had to submit his will to the Father's will as we do. And so speaking prophetically concerning him, he said, who is blind 
but my servant. Or death as my messenger that I sent, who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant. This is how Jesus was blind. And we need to listen closely. Seeing many things, but thou observest not. He saw many things that he did not pay any attention to. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. He who opened the ears and the eyes of the blind and those that could not hear or speak, this, this, this Savior purposely was blind to many things, was purposely deaf to many things. He could see and he could hear, but he was listening to the tune of a different drummer than those around him. Hallelujah. And can I tell you, here we are in the 21st century, and there's a lot going on. We don't intend to see those things that are causing men's hearts to fail. We're not observing that. That's, that's, not, that's not where our focus is. That's not where our attention is. That's not where our time is. And the things that people are hearing, and it's everywhere. I'm not saying you can escape it, but I'm also saying, amen, we've got to be listening to the voice, amen, of our beloved. We've got to hear the voice of him that speaketh, to the voice that is behind us saying, turn to the left, turn to the right, speak to this one, talk to that one, teach here, do this, do that, amen, because we are people of destiny. There's just a lot going on in this world. Amen. And we can't afford distraction. It's very important where we focus, hearts and eyes and ears. Our focus has to be upon him and his plan for us. What does he want us to do? What's he desire us to do? We've got to see the condition of lost souls. And the fears that are gripping them. Winston Churchill led Great Britain. Jesus Christ rules all. There was a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the only king in scripture outside of our God that I can find that is referred to as, the, as a king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian Empire, nothing ever quite like it. God even gave a vision where it was likened unto a head of goat, followed by the Media Persian Empire, which was two-armed Media Persian, and it was silvered, followed by loins of brass, which was the Grecian Empire that would destroy the Media Persian Empire, followed by legs of iron, which was the Roman Empire, and then there would be feet of part iron and part clay, which would be a time coming when some nations would be strong and some would be weak, and that's the world in which we're living. But he also saw a stone cut out of a mountain, a man that came out and it smote the image and broke it into millions of pieces, and the wind blew it away like the thresh of a summer threshing floor, amen. And that 
stone grew and filled and became a mountain that ruled all. That's the kingdom of God, brother. That's our kingdom it's talking about. Strong nations, weak nations, amen, Babylonian, Persian, Grecian, Roman Empire, they're all gone. Amen. But there's a kingdom which shall never be removed, and God has put us in it by his mercy. One day, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in this dream he saw a vast, huge tree, large trunk, leafage, branches, Fowls of the air of all kinds. And then he heard the voice of watchers. And the tree was cut down. And bands of steel wrapped around it. And there it lie for seven seasons. Nobody could give him the interpretation until Daniel came. He said, the interpretation is to your enemies. You, Babylon, you, Nebuchadnezzar. But I've got a word for you, sir. You better walk humbly or you're going to be cut down like that tree. Well, he probably did for a few weeks. And then he got bolder and bolder. And one day he's standing out on his balcony. And he's looking over the vast, vast city of Babylon. And he begins to talk about this kingdom which I built with my might, for my glory, my power. My honor! And while he's bragging on himself, he hears a voice. And it was the watchers. It was the angels. And I'm going to interpolate. You should have listened to Daniel, dude. And after a while, they come get him. They're leading him off the balcony. He can't even talk. He don't even know where he's at. We don't know how long it is. He's out in the big backyard with the wavy grass crawling on hands and knees. He's been changed physiologically, mentally, emotionally. He's like a beast of the field. His hair grows so thick it's like feathers. He's eating grass. He is out of it, and he's that way for seven years. And when seven years come by, the watchers say, let's see if he's learned his lesson. And all of a sudden, and he gets to his feet. Before it's over, he's back on the throne. He's ruling. I venture to say he got a good shake. He went back to filet mignons. And then he begins to write a letter. And he says, Israel's God is the God. This man that was driven from men and his body wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And 
that's just the way it is. The underlying theme, and I'm headed somewhere, of Daniel's entire book is the sovereignty of God over all human affairs and the fact that God is always the victor. You'll find those words in the book of Daniel under the notes in the Premier Study Bible. Praise God. Therefore, what was told Esther by Mordecai is true for us. Listen. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Listen. God is going to take care of us. Hallelujah. The coronavirus hit. I remember when it first hit. I was sitting in pastor's home in Kentucky. I was catching a flight to come back home. It was early March. And they said, it won't be long. We weren't speaking negatively. But we said, it's going to affect us. It's going to affect our churches. You and I have friends that will die. I know 13 preachers that are now gone from this. But I also know that our, I'm not bragging, please. Our church right now is teaching over 250 Bible studies. And people are getting baptized every week, every week. Because people are scared. And people, people, are, people are like, they want to know. They want to know what's happening. What's happening? Is there an answer? There is an answer. And we've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Hallelujah. So we're the people upon whom the ends of the world have come. And here's the title of what I'm preaching. Brothers and sisters, let this be our finest hour. This is not time to be wringing our hands. This is time to be stretching out our hands. This is our finest hour. We were born for these days. I read in Hebrews 11.33 of our forefathers who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Quench the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead to life, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, moreover bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. This is our finest hour. This is the time for the church to shine. 
Amen. The next chapter of Isaiah is 43. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. When through the rivers, they'll not overflow thee. When you walk through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall a flame kindle upon thee. Amen. It's time for the church to shine. I'm, I'm getting closer to being done than what you might think. In 165 A.D., that's a long time before the Nicene Council of 325 A.D. 165 A.D., we're talking about Christianity was oneness apostolic. They baptized in Jesus' name. They believed that Jesus Christ was the incarnate God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. 165 A.D., the Antonine Plague began. It is considered one of the top ten plagues in all of human history. They're not sure how many died, but they said it hastened towards the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. At one point, 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome. The emperors, the politicians, and listen to me, the pagan priests had scattered. And people prior to this, they would pay if they wanted the priest to come and bless their house, they would. But you had to make sure you fattened their pockets. When they asked them to come and help people that were sick, they were nowhere to be found. They had scattered. But I'll tell you who was still in town. There were one God, Jesus, named Christians in town. This is historical during the Antonine Plague, 5,000 a day dying in Rome. And Christians, and some of those Christians died too, but the pagans, after it was over, called it the Christian miracle because compared to the populace, not nearly as many Christians died as others. But it was the Christians. They would put, not the Christians, but Romans would throw piles of bodies in the streets, close to the Tiber, get them out of sight. Some of them weren't dead. They were just lying there waiting to die. And it was the Christians that would go to them and kneel by them and would wipe their brows and put water to their lips. I'll let you do it. I don't want to spill it all over your tie. And they would give them to drink. They would comfort them. They would pray with them. They would talk to them. They said, I'll be back in a little while. And they'd go to the next person. And they'd go to the next person. And they'd go to the next. And they were doing it all over the Roman Empire. And when the plague was over, people began to look at the Christians in a different way. And then... 75 years later, about 240, this is still before 325 A.D., the Cyprian plague broke out. Not as bad, but the same thing happened. And this is one of the reasons that when Constantine said he would now go forth under the sign of the cross, which is not good for true Christianity, but at that point, the Roman Empire, which was 
about three to 350 million people in the Roman Empire. They say 10 to 12% were Christian. And they were the largest single segment, belief segment, in the nation. And here we go. When the last pagan emperor, Julian, they called him Julian the Apostate, in 362 was another plague that came in his day. Julian literally rebuked the pagan priest for falling short of the example given by the Christians during yet another great plague. He recognized Christian compassion and sacrificial service was one of the great causes behind the ascendancy of the church. Brothers and sisters, with all this needs to be our finest hour. This needs to be our finest hour. If we ever spent time in talking to Jesus, being faithful to him and to his word and to his cause and say we will be a light to this world. Hallelujah. If there ever was a time we would rise up and say, God, I'm willing to spend and to be spent. This is why, Dan, in fact, musicians come. Daniel 11.32 says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupt by flatteries, but they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Hallelujah. Let me give this to you and some other paraphrases. Amen. But the people who know their God will stand firm and prevail. The people who know their God shall be strong and do great things. The people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and will stand firm and do exploits for God. Hallelujah. If there ever was a time to witness, if there was ever a time to let people know, if there ever was a time, amen, to say, hey, I know it's a scary day, but let me tell you, I got some good news, buddy. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You don't have to go through this world chewing your fingernails down. There's a God. There's a helper. There's a Savior. Let's all stand. I got a great friend. He's a friend of this church. His name's Brother O.C. Marler. He does... Uh, Thoughts Roundup, Holy Ghost Radio. Uh, I think it's on YouTube. And and we were talking the other day, and I, and I, I I listened to him. And he said he was talking about people he'd seen healed and beautiful. He said, you know, I've got a story, Larry, that I haven't told yet. I said, really. I said, what? He said, I think people would think I'm lying. I said, oh, see. He said, well, I'm going to tell you. He said, and through the years, he said, I really haven't told very many people this. He said, sometimes it's hard for me to believe, but he said, I was there. I know. I said, oh, see, in these days, that
pastoring in Dallas. And he gets a phone call one day. Frantic woman. Forgive me, I don't remember if it was her husband or son. Someone she loved, new family member, had been in a terrible blast fire. 98% of his body had been burned. And she said, Brother Marler, it was the Parkland Hospital. It was the, the hospital where John F. Kennedy had died shortly before. He said, would you go pray for us? He said, yes, absolutely. So we went, and those were different days, the way they did things. I, I remember when I was a kid going to hospital rooms, people sitting in there smoking cigarettes. It was a different world. But he said, he went to the room, emergency situation, several doctors, nurses, they're working on him. He said as he's coming down the hall, he could hear the man screaming. He was screaming, oh, God, to save us. And they're working on him. He comes into the room, they look at him, and finally he said, look, I'm a preacher. I've been asked to come and pray. I know what you're doing is exceedingly important. Can I just kind of slip in and pray? Yes, yes, yes. So I don't know if he put his hand on the bed. I don't know if he touched his body, but he, he began to pray. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, in your name, God. And the man was... instantly stopped screaming. And all the doctors and nurses, he said, the pain's gone. He said, I have no pain. And they all looked at Brother Marler. He said, that's my Jesus. So he said, he said, Brother Booker, the next day, see the man. And he said, I walked by the waiting room and it was pretty full of people. He said, I, I glanced away and looked at him and he said, a man pointed at me. Pointed at me. And they all turned. He said, I'm walking down and I hear, sir, sir, sir. He stopped and everybody came pouring out of that waiting room. And they said, are you, are, you, are you the preacher that prayed for the man that was burned so bad? He said, yes. And one said, will you come with me to ICU? My boy's there. He's been in a bad car wreck. Would you pray for my boy? And another man, my wife's in ICU. She's got cancer. She's not going to make it. If and another one, my daughter, my husband, and all of these people, would you come to ICU and pray? He said, yes, of course I will. He said, hospitals were different, buddy, but they ain't that different. He said, here came all these people wanting to get in an ICU. And, and, and there's a, pretty soon there's 
doctors, Mr. Kapapa, we're going to bring this man, this going to bring this. They said, you can't do this. And he realized these people were desperate. These people were frantic. And them coming in the ICU and, and it just wasn't going to happen. So the doctors were resisting and they were, they were wanting, this is my baby's in there. And, and he realized this is going to be a deal. So Brother Mark said, thank you, sir, thank you. He said, please come with me, come with me. Let's go to the waiting room. Come on, come on, let's go. He said, who is it we're going to pray for? My son, what's his name? John, what's he got? What are you going to put? My wife, what's her name? What's she got? All these. Things. Now, everybody, let's all hold hands. We're going to pray for John and Mary and Julian. We're going to pray in God's able. These were just scared people. They didn't know Jesus like he did. They didn't know about the Holy Ghost, the baptism. They're holding hands and they're praying. God, you gotta help somebody. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Listen to me. He said, Brother Booker, by the next day. Every single one of them was totally healed. Why do you suppose that happened? Why does that need to be told right now? We're in the last of the last days. We're the people upon whom the ends of the world have come. This is meant to be our finest hour. If people ever needed us, they need us now. If people ever needed this message, they need it now. If they ever needed this church, they need it now. So, sir, ma'am, young man, young lady, hey boy, listen to me. Little girl, listen to me. These are meant to be our finest days. These are meant to be our finest hours. If something is burning in you that says, God, if this light ever shone, let it shine up. If you ever used me to reach and teach and love and care, let it be now. If I ever, right now, if you want this to be your finest hour, either where you are or coming down here, with hearts raised, knees bent if you want, whatever. I want you to use me, God. If you're here today without the Holy Ghost, this can be your finest day. 
If you've never repented of your sins, God brought you here today, sir. God brought you here today because he loves you. He's ready to forgive your sins and have them washed away through baptism in your repentance. Baptism in Jesus' name will wash them all away. And you can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost before, during, after. These altars are open. If you want the Holy Ghost, you want to repent, come on, sir. Come on, man. If you want to be used of God, if there's something inside that says, God, this is going to be my finest hour, use me, Jesus. Come on. Come on. God's here to help us. Come on. God's here to do it. Come on. God's here. God's here. God's here to do it. Come on, sir. Come on, ma'am. Exactly right. Oh, God, have your way in my life. 